Welcome to Keeping It Secure, the Hashicast show about security trends, cloud adoption challenges, and security innovation. Join your hosts, DevOps Rob and DevOps Adil, as we tackle the complexities of cloud security and industry-wide challenges. Right, Keeping It Secure, people. Episode three, we are back. I am your co-host, DevOps Rob. I'm joined with my co-host, DevOps Adil. Say hey to the peeps. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Uh, Super excited again and continuing on a proper journey here, man. Right, so I think um, we're going to have to change your Slack profile picture to the Prodigy album cover. Anyone remembers the the group Prodigy? They had a hit hit song. There's a number one single called Firestarter. It goes something <laughs> along the lines of, I'm a firestarter, a twisted firestarter. Something along that. those lines, right? That's that's DevOps a deal, right? You know, because <laughs> woo! Listen, we've recorded, we did two episodes of HashiCast, right? And that's when, you know, just through conversation, we decided that we're going to do this Keeping It Secure podcast because we want to keep having a conversation. We want to keep questioning things. We want to keep learning and understanding and through that, um, the deal started a few fires, right? Uh, maybe, maybe I did. Maybe I did too, you know. Maybe I uh, provided a little bit of fuel. But um, we, we've had loads of feedback, right? Loads of feedback. Some really, really good feedback. Um, some people challenging our view, um, disagreeing with some of the things that we've said, uh, which is great. This That's exactly what this show is for, right? Um, we're trying to help move the industry forward and the only way we can do that is by a diversity of thought right so you know uh, i've said it many times adil said it many times we do not have all of the answers right um at this stage we're doing a lot of asking questions and trying to understand i don't really think you can solutionize until you you have a thorough understanding of the problem and the thing is i know people will say but the problem is well understood and maybe it is, but do we all share the same understanding? Do we all interpret our understanding of the problem the same way? Right? Because if we don't, then we start to have this disparity when we start trying to solutionize, right? So this is uh, like one of the key things that we're trying to get out of uh, this session, right? Uh, so we've had, uh, like I say, loads of feedback. Um, I'm not going to mention any names of the people that have given feedback just because I just didn't actually get their permission to share their details on this podcast. Um, but I will say uh, there was uh, some feedback around defense in depth specifically. And, you know, Adil had some views uh, around removing the layers uh, on defense in depth. Uh, he discussed that in the first podcast we ever did, actually. Um, and then we touched on it again in the second podcast. Um, so if you haven't heard that definition, what I'll do is I'll quickly play a soundbite, which you've probably heard it in a HashiCast before. But I just want to make sure that all the listeners are just armed with everything up front before we delve into this conversation. So I'll just quickly play this clip right now. As far as I'm concerned, if it doesn't achieve an objective, then it is, it is an unnecessary layer of complexity. Also add to that, from a security perspective, right, is that... If I've managed to apply control at one level, by applying controls at multiple levels, which I believe is redundant, right, is, is instead of thinking of it being a fortified security control, rather, I believe it's an added risk because these are all surface attack areas as far as I'm concerned. 
And there you have it. Those are the words of DevOps to deal. Um, so uh, we're talking about defense in depth, right? Um, and also it kind of leans into something that uh, one of the people that gave feedback said, where they said that zero trust is a layered defense in depth approach, right? So I think maybe there's some context missing from some of the things you were saying. So let's start from the very beginning, right? You you mentioned the military uh, definition of defense in depth, and you compared it to a computer science approach to defense in depth, right? So let's start from the very beginning. What are you saying about defense in depth? What is defense in depth to you, or what should it be, and why? Thanks, Rob. Um, and I think you know, this is a it, it it is a, a very important discussion to have, and uh, I'm I whilst I think I believe at face value right now, the IT industry has a single view of defense in depth, which is this layered approach, um, and I, and I I think I was clear in that I I, I disagree with this uh, multi layer approach and, and and the terminology of defense in depth I believe is rather it's about defending your core or fortifying the core and if we talk about say in the it world the the essence here would be your your data your core your data would either your data and and also your kind of your controls or the administration of the platform now these are essentially would be your core right and protecting that core and relaxing uh the 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 layers around the perimeter or even the perimeter being obviously the outside, but even also these other layers, which I believe are redundant. But in essence, and I think I put this in a tweet, right? It's not securing at every layer. It's rather adding, it's monitoring every layer, right? So it's securing the core and on each and every layer of that application stack is to be monitored. And I, hate to, and I repeat this again, right? It's that what we believe in. It's something that... Um, uh, I was in Google, uh, Google Cloud Expo, uh, and Seth Vargo uh, mentioned is that as an industry, we spend a lot of time focusing on preventative controls and not enough time in detective controls. I, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that the at which point these outer layers, or rather, would be should be in the form of detective controls. What does that mean? I.e., honeypot. Right, you know, having some kind of honeypot, having enough monitoring out there to understand. And again, I repeat, coming back to this whole kind of why the objective here is to move away from unknown, unknown. Because when you have that perimeter, yeah, you you, you think you're safe, but uh, as one said, right, the, the threat attack and the threat uh, level is not constant. It's constant. It, it's always. It's not constant. Rather, it's changing. Right, it's continuously changing, and you don't know where that vector is. And until you don't have those such monitoring in place, you know you will not get yourself into that position and to be able to better prepare yourself. Yes, it does take a lot of confidence. And I don't, I'm not saying that everyone is there at the moment. Uh, rather, I'm saying is that we need to work towards that. We need to work towards that model. What we're seeing is a pattern, especially in the cloud, where things have changed now, right? In the cloud, we have the shared responsibility model. We have the physical layer, all of this already kind of taken care of by the cloud. Now, we have a different model where... The, it's even more important to start focusing on a different viewpoint using, for example, identity, using kind of that whole IAM approach, but it's essentially access to the data, right? If we can, and I think what we need to agree in principle is that there are risks 
and there are controls to the risk. And I really, I, I, maybe I'm being pedantic here, but I really would like a consensus, you know, um, from everyone in principle that we agree that actually, if a if there is a risk and a control, a single layered control has met that risk, then any additional control would be redundant. Unless we're saying that we don't trust that risk or trust that control, rather, sorry. Unless we're not saying that we don't trust that control. Now, why? I suppose, from my, from my point of view, if we don't trust the control, why have it in the first place? Why, why, why are we even putting the effort in putting it in? Now, if we're saying, actually, no, this control, there are additional risks behind this control. For example, okay, encrypting the data, uh, we want to encrypt the data uh, using a, a data encryption key, a, a deck. So uh, before it gets, uh, before it's landed on into storage. So maybe the technology uh, up until recently wasn't there and would require a human to do so. And obviously, as you and I, everyone knows, where there is an element of human intervention, there is the inevitable human error. And that in, its, that in itself is a risk. Now, if we're saying actually, just in case someone has missed, and we know there's a, there's a whole report out there now about the number one insider threat or the number one kind of security breach is, is the misconfiguration of the cloud, right? So now if we're saying actually, just in case someone, uh, let's use the example of GCS bucket. So there we have tight IAM controls around GCS bucket, but at the same time, we're also saying is that um, this GCS bucket is not publicly visible. So you need a you need a, a private IP address, which is within the VPC, VPC, sorry, rather, to access that bucket. Yeah. So there's two things here now. Now, what is it? Are we saying that actually, if just in case there is a misconfiguration that I am, well, we have protection that no one from outside can get into it in case that we had a misconfiguration of the IAM, right? So now we're saying as we're adding this additional control, yeah, um, rather this is not a layered control in my opinion. This is a control that's mitigating a separate risk altogether and it's mitigating the risk of human error. I still don't think it's valid, don't get me wrong, but at this point what, we're, what I'm, I'm trying to make the difference, the distinction between a, a two controls trying to achieve uh, two controls trying to uh, uh, mitigate the same risk, right? Uh, that's one aspect. And the other aspect is actually two controls. One first control is mitigating the initial risk, and the second control is mitigating the unintended risk that's come out of it, i.e. the human error. Right? Then at this point, okay, I can accept that. That's something, at that point, that's not a layered approach. And, and I still, so I still stand by my, uh, comment to say that the the layered approach in the first scenario is redundant. In the second scenario, I believe that's not a layered approach. Rather, it's a control for a different risk. And let's make that let's give you the analogy. When I was traveling uh, a few years back, I was traveling to India uh, and Bangladesh, and uh, um, I'm allergic to cats, right? And uh, what it was so uh, with the my cat allergy, if I enter in the UK, if I even come into someone's house. I immediately start getting itchy and nurse, my eyes start watering up. So I know, then I realize, I, hang on, is, is there a cat here or something? And then, yeah, we do have to have a cat. So, you know, it's, I get early warning signs, right? But so when, when I went to India and, and Bangladesh, um, 
I was going to mosques where they had cats and stuff, and, and I didn't have that itchiness and, and and all that kind of feeling. So um, I started stroking the cat, you know, because I like cats. I don't, it's not, I don't, I, I, you know, I don't like cats. I'm just allergic to it. And that boom, you know, my eyes start shutting, and I was like, I couldn't see for three days. Right, it was bad. So a few friends uh, went to the pharmacy to get me medicine, and they, gave, I kid you not, they gave me a carrier bag full of medicines you know, just for my allergic reaction. They said one of them. The, the first one they showed me, let's call it medicine A, was to actually treat or reverse the allergic reaction. Medicine B was to uh, uh, to counter the side effects from medicine A. And medicine C was to counter the side effects from medicine B. So if I was to put this analogy, and this is the and this is not just for one person, this is my experience, in my, in my, even in my past role, is that when I ask the, the hard questions, why do you need another layer? Why is it that we need to have, I don't know, network controls, despite the fact that we have um, kind of this whole mutual TLS identity access in place? Why do we still feel we need to have IP uh, um, filtering in place? When I ask that question, the question uh, almost 90% of the time, the answer has always been just in case the TLS has been, uh, has been misconfigured or it's been compromised. Right. So if I was to put that analogy there, essentially what we're saying is that we have this partial control or we have this control that has unintended risk or additional risk that's attached to it. And therefore, to counter that, we're adding this. That's how I see it. So in my opinion, obviously, again, let me come back to that distinction is that that's not a layered approach. That's not a layered control. Rather, it's a it's the second control is is counteracting or counter. Uh, um, mitigating the unintended risk that's come out of it, right? So that's not led. But the ultimately, and I think it's probably leading on to, is that, you know, obviously I've kind of talked about the layered piece, but let's talk about this piece here. Even though this could be somewhat, somewhat extensible, uh, I, I still think that's a tactical move, not a strategic move. The strategic move would be to address that unintended risk in the first place. So let's just say in the world, in, in mutual TLS. Actually, I, I read a, a blog post the other day about um, uh, someone from AWS talking about that they don't do uh, TLS encryption from the ALB, the application load balancer, to the, the VM. And the uh, reason why is because it's not at the top of their priority at this point. And why? Because they've fortified their VPC, and, and you know, which is a lot stronger. Uh, and But the argument that they made was that know generally people even if you're using let's encrypt it's very difficult to automate and i think the certificates are expired or they're using self-side um so the impression i got was that oh um the because of the lack of automation or the kind of manual human intervention process and laborious process therefore we're dismissing the notion of securing that the application layer altogether is that's the impression i got um so I come back to this is that what I'm trying to say is right strategically we need to be addressing this we need to be addressing that, 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 that this risk and if the, if the risk today is that manual laborious human intervention well what are we doing to address and remove that piece you know and again you know I, I'm going to use Vault as an example here Vault PKI but you know there's others, others out there now you know kind of doing the whole kind of uh, automated PKI piece anyways but like, let's use Vault as an example here Vault PKI where it does the whole, especially if you use Vault Agent, it does the whole auto renewal 
and you can even reduce it to like 15 days or even uh, a, a lot smaller than that, right? Where it's renewed. So that that risk, let's just say, of manual human intervention laborious process, we've removed that, right? In the example of, say, a, t- a TLS piece, that risk is no longer there. Therefore, any of those legacy uh, controls that were trying to counter and, or mitigate that human risk, well, that's now is redundant again. You know, so it comes back to that. So I think it's, to give that context again in a long-winded way, the point I'm trying to make is that I still believe the layered approach is redundant and where there may be a logical rationale behind this layered approach, well, I don't think that's, let's let's uh, agree that that's not, what, that's not layered, rather it's a separate control for a separate risk that's come out of the first control. Let's talk a little bit about the mindset a little bit, right? Um, so... I'm just reading the, so I'm on the beyondcorp.com website. Um, so beyondcorp um, is where this this concept of, of zero trust w- was born, right? Um, so just a quick synopsis that they have on the homepage, I'll just read it. It says, when a highly sophisticated APT attack named Operation Aurora occurred in 2009, Google began an internal initiative to reimagine their security architecture with regards to how employees and devices access internal applications. Unlike traditional perimeter security model, BeyondCorp dispels the notion of network segmentation as a primary mechanism for protecting sensitive resources. Instead, all applications are deployed to the public internet accessible through a user and device-centric authentication and authorization workflow. Right? So, you know, that's pretty much what they were trying to achieve. There's a lot, there's, if you go to the website, there's a lot of sort of papers that they've written about different elements of this. Uh, they go on to say the guiding principles set forth by Google help pave the path for other organizations to realize their own implementation of a zero trust network, right? So I think one of the things that comes to mind is, it's, it's a mindset, right? P- people have this this mindset that, a network or a subnet, for example, is a very rigid perimeter and you can put controls at the borders there. You can put a firewall there and you can have all these different layers that, you know, you can kind of think of it as like a house, right? So you, you have a front door. If a thief wants to break into your house, they would try and get through your front door. Um, so if you have a porch in front of that, which also has a locked door, then it's another layer in front of that, right? And then you know, uh, same with a garage. If you've got a garage door, they'll try and come through that. And then you have another door that gets you inside the property. It's all these layers they need to get through. And then you have this added complexity of a burglar alarm, right? How do you get around those things there? And I feel like that's the mindset. I think a lot of us come from Unix background and we have Unix mindset. And what do they call this thing? Do you remember SE Linux, right? SE Linux was, was it was hot, man. I was a big fan of that. If you look at kind of the the setup of se linux and how it went about protecting your systems it operated in kind of sandbox environments like the idea was that if a uh, particular process is compromised then the impact of that is limited to that specific sandbox right so that was kind of a very high level uh, overview of how se linux approached securing unix systems right it's a similar mindset to this whole network segmentation kind of approach. You know, you, you have uh, boundaries and perimeters and so on and so forth. But the way I would look at it is like this. 
when I was a consultant, I used to work with certain organizations and they would say things like, um, we want to be open source, but we don't know how. We don't know when we're ready. And the question I always used to ask them is, so the source code that you want to open source, can I just put it on the internet now? And a lot of the time the answer would be no. And I'd be like, well, why not? And they'll say, oh, because it has this inside it and it has that inside it and so on and so forth. I'll say, well, that's why you're not ready, right? At the point when I say to you, can you put this on the internet right now? Can you put this on GitHub publicly? And you turn around and say, yes. That's because you've removed all of those dependencies on things that, you know, uh, compromise you, right? So you have to have kind of have a similar mindset, I think, that you need to kind of uh, migrate to this this idea that, you know, I, I, call, I don't even know if this is a good phrase and I hope it's not offensive, but I used to call it dumb code, right? You want to write dumb code. Like the code is like not knowledgeable really about anything that is a threat to your, your core resources or your core application or your data, right? It's just literally the plumbing, right? It's, it's the plumbing is nothing without the water or the gas or whatever it is that's going through the system. And it should go and get that from a source somewhere else. And that should not be in your code, right? It's the same kind of mindset. So I think what it is, is we're battling against a, a mindset, which we've, we've had for decades now, where we have a, a rigid perimeter. And in fact, now what we're saying is that like we put your source code on, on GitHub, for example, would you just put your application on the internet, just like what Google has done here, right, with this Beyond Corp story. Can you just put it on the internet? Uh, and if you can't, why not, right? And it, if, if the, when you start to answer the question, why not, that's when you can start to understand the challenges that you're facing and you can put in appropriate security controls. And that to me is, is and, and this is what Adil and I do all the time, right? We, we question things, you know? We always... You know, we're humans. We make assumptions, right? We assume that things operate a certain way and that uh, the reason why we don't do certain things is because of A, B, and C. Where someone else will look at the same scenario and say, well, the reason why we're not doing it is actually because of X, Y, and Z. Right? You need to kind of validate why you're doing things, right? Um, so I think the biggest challenge, so when I read some of the feedback that that's come from people is I'm still kind of sensing that that kind of segmented mindset um, which, you know, I understand it, 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 it takes, you know, a lot of bravery and a lot of time to kind of, uh, migrate your mindset to something that places trust somewhere else. Right. Um, and that's kind of one of the things that I'm really urging people to kind of go into is just, you know, the deal mentioned the, the military definition of defense in depth. I am now saying to you, go to beyondcorp.com and just start reading through the papers that Google has published and, and just try to understand it, right? And what I don't want you to do is take what they've done and attempt a lift and shift approach to your own organizations. That's, that's like the worst thing you can do. Please don't do that. What I want you to do is extract the value that they have been able to implement with this approach, right? And see how that translates to your organization. How can you achieve the same value? Because the mechanism for how to achieve that same value might not necessarily be the same as some of the things that you read, right? And this is, I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast about people doing lift and shift with, with uh, other ideas. And I think I mentioned the Spotify model as an example, right? We, we've got to get away from that, right? We have to listen to people's success stories 
and understand why it was successful for them, right? And then we have to translate why that may or may not be successful for us. And how do we take the things that are relevant for us from that model and implement it? And the things that aren't so relevant, then we just maybe discard that and think of other ways to solve some of the leftover challenges, right? Um, but that's, that's I, f- I feel like the biggest thing you and I are going to have a deal with is we're going to keep coming up against uh, that type of mindset, right? And that's okay because, you know, the cloud is young in the grand scheme of things when you think about it, right? Um, so, you know, this is like, I'm, I'm not here to criticize anyone that that disagrees or anything like that. I, this is this is really healthy. I really, really appreciate the feedback that we've got from, from people. And this is the type of uh, conversations that we need to have, right? Um, so I'm just going to start reading some bits from uh, the, uh, some of the feedback that we had here, right? So it says, uh, uh, the biggest thing I wanted to dig into was around zero trust. Dare I say it's a layered approach, but your argument seems to be that the layered approach is overkill. If indeed you trust that the controls placed around the app are effective, right? Do you trust your controls? I think my disagreement there is that controls at any layer can be compromised by a zero-day threat, social engineering, or landscape changing, i.e. malware that gets planted internally in a novel way, such as supply chain hack. And therefore, you can't trust an internal control too idealistically to do so as it presumes that the threat model remains constant, right? I'm not going to lie. When I read that piece of feedback, I thought to myself, that's a valid argument. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a very valid uh, point of view, right? How much trust can you place in a specific control, right? Um, and I kind of want to get your response on that. But before I hear from you, I just want to say that... Be- basically what this comment is saying is it's it's talking about the evolving landscape as as one of the the factors right things changing and you're basically creating controls based on the static threat model right but doesn't that further support Adil's argument then about a honeypot right so you're now learning so when new attack um attempts are coming in you're now learning and you're able to adjust your threat model and based on that you can now you know implement new controls or you you can um you know you can evolve existing controls or whatever doesn't that support the argument um i'm going to throw it back to a deal and just kind of get your thoughts on that 100 percent, and that's exactly what i was, was going to say was more to the more to my point on detective controls right is the, the 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 landscape or the changing landscape and uh the fact that the threat model uh is not constant it's dynamic right it's it's more of a reason why we need those detective controls in place. It's more of a reason why we need, you know, that kind of investing in uh, kind of honeypot, honeypot type infrastructure to understand those changing landscapes, to understand. I, I think I mean, there's even a recent, I haven't had a chance to actually listen to Google, Google Cloud's uh, security um, podcast that, that just recently uh, released one called Detective Engineering. Um, I just had a little intro, but, but they were essentially talking about investing in, uh, in, uh, in uh, that whole kind of, and what they're trying to say, there's a difference between adding policies in SIEM and detective engineering. You know, having policies in SIEM, again, is also detecting anomalies, et cetera, so, but detective engineering. And 
as I said, I haven't listened to all of it, but I'm assuming what they're alluding to is deploying a complete infrastructure out uh, around kind of the whole detection or maybe adding AI uh, uh, on kind of big data analytics. That's the, uh, the assumption I'm making is what they mean by detective engineering. But I mean, and and I think it further supports what I'm trying to say here is that you know is really ha- investing enough of those kind of detective controls in place like like tiny pots to essentially pick out and understand that changing landscape, understanding that, that whole talking about the threat model and that threat, uh, the, the attack vector. So coming back to the, the changing landscape, it understood 100%. Okay, if we look at that comment, for example, the social engineering piece, right? Again, that's the that's the human error. And it comes back to the previous point I was talking about, you know, is that that's the human element, uh, rather, you know, where we have a process that has some form of human intervention in place, right? Now, I'm, again, I'm going to use HashiCorp Terraform Sentinel as the example here. But if we had, say, security creating these kind of Sentinel policies that prevents uh, someone from writing Terraform code uh, um, that's against, I don't know, an old policy. Let's just say, for example, um, I want to deploy GKE, you know, Google Kubernetes Engine, using Terraform code. And within that GKE, there is a parameter that allows uh, uh, the GK to be public. Okay, so public IP, as in it has a public IP address, therefore publicly accessible. Security maybe wants it to be private. Now, Terraform code allows me to change that, so it's prone to human error. Even if I add a module, you know, at the end of the day, there is a human element. Someone could just go in there and put, put that parameter as yes, uh, and therefore allow public IP address, right? So there could be now, how would we have done that traditionally? Maybe adding more kind of stringent change processes, more adding more eyes onto it, you know, in the in the, in the change request, or maybe okay, even though they're done a public IP, it's still behind a perimeter, and that perimeter is going to be blocking access to it. You know, these could be the the obviously in in, in the cloud in the, in the cloud where things are pretty much perimeterless. You know, by changing that to say publicly accessible, essentially what you're saying is that now it, it, it doesn't have a perimeter and it's not open to the internet. So, but today we have what we call, you know, policy as code, right? Whether it's Sentinel, whether it's OPA, Open Policy Agent, all of these uh, tools are out there now. There are a number of different tools out there now uh, having that kind of whole preventative control. So, but these are controls for that human element. Right. I mean, so, even even sorry to cut you. Even even the the major cloud providers themselves have their. I mean, Azure has Azure Sentinel. I'm I'm pretty sure AWS and GCP have their own kind of policy frameworks as well. So, and that that to me is a it's it's a big signal that even the cloud providers recognize the value and the importance of these controls here. You know, it's it's a statement. It's a statement. Exactly. And the thing is, right, like, yeah, exactly. So GCP has their, um, uh, what they call GCP org policy constraints, right? But it, it's exactly that. It's that the point is that, at the end of the day, it is a risk. A human element is the risk, right? And where they see some a process that we have to deliver involves a human element, okay, we have a control. Obviously, a human element in itself is a risk, and we have a control for that risk. That's separate, right? That's not, I still don't consider it to be a layered approach. As in, like, if, for example, the the risk here is that a data or say pub, um, PII data 
um, uh, should not be uh, needs to go through the whole principle of pre least privileged access. Therefore, it shouldn't be accessible public to to uh, anyone. Um, so I'm going to uh, apply certain controls to it, and those controls could be uh, I am uh, or I don't know mutual TLS or you know basically where I'm using I am permissions that only certain people are allowed to access that information. Right, so that control is for that data. Now the point about well actually. GKE, uh, if it is public, um, and inherently by being public, if if someone has access to the, say the host, and inherently from by access to the host, they can access the file. For example, yeah. Then at that point, the control again uh, is actually I, I I'll go back on that on that piece here. It's like if actually now that I think about it, right? I still think it's. I still maintain. I still think it's redundant. I still think GK should should be public, actually. Um, but let's go along with the with the idea that people want to keep it private, right? And there is a human element involved. Then you add, like you said, GCP or policy constraints or 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 sensible policy or any of those kind of policy as code or or you know preventative policies, preventative controls. Those will be applied. Now, obviously, it's a separate argument altogether. But I want to really come back to. Before I come back to the thing, I want to come back to what you were talking about beyond the court. Um, that they were talking about how, you know, ask question yourself as to why would you want to prevent your application being out on the internet? And that's exactly what I'm I've been saying even in my last role, is that treat your application as if it was public facing. Treat your treat every application as if it was out on the DMZ. Right. What do you do for of an application that's on the DMZ? You add you know, web application files, you add WAFs to it, right? You add um, kind of layer seven, uh, kind of, uh, uh, what's it, uh, traffic interception. You add kind of your application layer resolution. You add kind of DDoS mitigation. You're adding all of this stuff. Fair enough. Maybe, you know, up until up until recently, these were very expensive tools that you couldn't really separate for per application. But now, obviously, in the cloud, each of these are presented as, presented as a service that can be deployed per application, right? So, if you have an internet-facing application which you 100% are satisfied it's secured, what's preventing you from using the same process for those private applications? Is it because, oh, the impact is higher? As in, like, if they had access to the data in the database, uh, then, you know, the, the impact is critical. Then, then, then you're essentially saying, actually, then you're not satisfied with the control that you place in the, the application one. But... You're, the only reason why you're allowing it is because the impact is low. As in, like, okay, I, I, that maybe that's okay. Because at the end of the day, everything should be assessed by the impact, right? Maybe that's okay. But what I'm trying to say is, at that point, is let's call it out. At that point, I'm trying to say, let's call it out to say that actually we don't have satisfactory controls um, which would satisfy the risks of uh, a data environment. However, those controls do satisfy the risk for an a web environment. Right? Let's call it out at that point. You know that you know the risk to to data is not there because the data is not there. And then at that point, let's just say, like you said, right? We're not ready. Okay, that's fine. I'm okay with that. Right? Is that we're not ready? But at the same time, my point is, what are we doing to pursue those? What are we doing to pursue uh, um, the uh, establishing controls? To the point where actually I can afford to have my sensitive uh, data and application out on the internet, and yet at the same time I've secured 
Um, and I'm very satisfied that there is principle of pre least privileged access applied to that. Why? Okay, then so my next question is, why would someone want to go to the effort? Because of platform architecture simplicity. The whole point is that I, my, my view or my vision is that we need to be in a position where we don't need a VPC anymore. We don't need to separate things or isolate things in a VPC. Everything is just out on the internet, you know, without a VPC. At which point, you know, these are all non-functional requirements. Let's just say these are all peripheral items, right? We could even have public serverless uh, kind of cloud functions, let's just say, right? On the assumption, again, the context I'm going to add here, on the assumption that you've had this kind of secured uh, layer here. If you think your your control will be compromised, right, then it's not a control or then it's not a satisfied control unless you're saying it's a partial control and the combination of two or three partial controls would satisfy the requirement. Again, that's acceptable as well. But I think we're not calling that out. So I'm just going to continue from there. I'm just going to like read some more uh, feedback that we had here. Um, so this is another quote here, which is, Yes, we need to rethink the paradigm, but I don't think we throw it all away. As you two were discussing identity as a possible final answer, yikes. I love the notion, but we are far away from having a universal, interoperable approach. Yet another challenge with where you two were heading is the presumption of infrastructure model. One of you made the point about the ubiquity of service meshes, but they aren't ubiquitous. Some are even pushing back against them as complexity is overkill. And smaller shops, forget it. Their EC2 consumers running VMs. They can't even spell Kubernetes. And the idea of a service mesh is morphing into some sort of identity broker is bleeding edge, right? So I kind of want to talk about that a little bit, right? So we go back to the identity bit, right? Uh, Identity as a final solution, if you think about it, we've already been doing that. We've been doing that for decades, right? It's just that what an identity was back in the day was an IP address and a port, right? How was the attestation done? It was done more manually. It was done by a human, right? A human would say, I'm going to give this VM or this, this bare metal machine, this IP address, I'm going to expose this port on the Linux firewall or whatever it is, right? And that was you trusted that whatever that engineer said that they had done, that was the identity of that VM. And then what you say is that this IP address and this uh, port is accessible by this IP address and that port and so on and so forth. You can control the flow of traffic based on that. So the idea of identity as the core construct is not new. You know, I haven't said anything groundbreaking there, right? It's just the mechanism for how we assign identity is where we need to, we need to rethink that, right? Um, we can no longer rely on a static IP address because we don't have static IP addresses in, in that kind of way when we're operating with dynamic uh, workflows, right? So in terms of uh, using a service mesh as um, an identity provider, what I kind of got from that comment is that Kubernetes and service mesh are pretty much something that goes hand in hand, right? Which I kind of understand. I understand why... why uh, People would think that. Um, but microservices doesn't necessarily mean you need to be on Kubernetes, right? So um, I can give an example of that. I, I once worked at an email service provider 
And this is before I even knew what the term microservices even meant, right? They, you know, big Microsoft shop, they had loads of, at the time, bare metal um, machines. They had loads of VMware VMs and all that kind of stuff there. And each VM was running a service, right? It was running like a Droid service or some kind of sweeper service or whatever the different makeup of their platform was, right? I cannot remember the names of the services. And then they migrated from on-premise to um, Microsoft Azure, right? The cloud. And it was lift and shift. They did the same thing. They had a bunch of VMs and these VMs were each running uh, services. So, you know, I I use Droid as as the example service because that's the one I remember, right? They'd have, say, five five droid servers which would do a lot of heavy lifting of uh, whatever was going on under the hood there and you know if it got too busy then they would add more vms you know we'd, we'd take five to ten and you'd have more droids and they would just chew up the the workloads that was microservice architecture and there was no kubernetes involved in that right there were no containers involved in that this is pure vms and dot exes running on these vms right it's all windows right that's still microservice architecture so in terms of the role that a service mesh can play in that type of architecture with that type of delivery mechanism using VMs, right? Maybe it's because, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but console is the only service mesh out there that allows, you know, you don't you don't have to have your service running inside a container as the entry price to use the service mesh, right? So maybe that's where uh, the the uh, assumption that I'm making is that people know this, and maybe they don't, right? Maybe they're using other service meshes out there that that maybe don't support that. You have to have a containerized application in order to take advantage of service mesh, right? So my point is here is number one. Again, I'm trying to not be a vendor junkie here. I'm just a big fan of how HashiCorp solves problems or how they approach problem solving. I've been a big fan long before. I joined the organization. So I would say that for those that aren't using containers, you can still leverage console as your service mesh and get some of these things here. But secondly, to those that are that are using containers, I'm not necessarily saying ditch what you're using and come over to console, right? You've invested in what you've invested in. You're bought into the idea. I think what you need to start doing is looking at, the things that console is doing and demanding that from, from the communities, right? You need to start shaping the direction of the tools that you're using, right? If console has this sort of capability, what we're saying at HashiCorp is that it shouldn't actually matter what the platform is, right? We're trying to solve a multi-cloud platform, uh, sorry, a multi-cloud problem, but, we're, like, but we want to do it for multiple platforms. You don't have to be on a specific platform. And I think more service meshes need to take lessons from that and push the direction of their products um, in that way. So that as an industry, we start to move forward. Like, So you are right in the sense that, yeah, not everyone is using a service mesh, correct. Number two, you know, not everyone is containerized, yeah, correct. So how do we remove uh, the, the dependence on these assumptions, right? And that would be to try to make the service mesh in general just, you know, multi-platform. It shouldn't matter what what your application is running on. All you know is that you have a service running here and it needs to be able to talk to another service running somewhere else, whether that's in a container, whether that's in a VM. How are you going to facilitate that communication? How are you going to control if it's allowed to communicate or not? We have this concept of uh, intentions in console, right? 
you know, these are all things. This is why I say that I feel like the service mesh has become a security product, right? Because of its position in the stack. But I say that with this context, and that is, well, it's multi-platform if you start looking at it from console's eyes. And, and you know, I, I just feel that whatever you're using out there, those communities need to start thinking multi-platform, right? You know, that like containers is great. Definitely the world has shifted towards that. But there are so many huge organizations out there that for one reason or another, the core part of their business just cannot migrate to containers, right? And we need to think about those people if we're going to create solutions that are inclusive. Uh, and that's why we, we can't sort of pigeonhole ourselves into a particular platform, right? It's just like turning around and saying like, you know, I'm not a cloud provider, but I want to solve a problem and I'm only going to solve it for GCP customers or I'm only going to solve it for Azure customers. It makes no sense because we're not going to make any forward steps in the, in the industry if we think like that. For GCP to think they're going to solve the problem for GCP customers makes perfect sense because they're GCP, right? But they still need to think a bit more outside the box and think, well, okay, we are GCP, but our customers may also be Amazon customers. They may also be Microsoft customers. How do we give them the best, most secure cloud experience we can? So they still need to think like that. But I understand that their primary focus is going to be GCP, right? But if you're not a cloud provider, you don't have to think like that. You know, we have to kind of broaden our view and think, what is it that we can do that makes things easier, more accessible and better for everyone, no matter what cloud you're using, no matter what platform you're using, right? And I think console is definitely on the right track. And please, other service meshes out there, just take some lessons from that and figure out how you can enable your communities to use whatever it is they need to use to continue making use of your service mesh. I'm going to throw it back to you, Adil, just for some final thoughts. Yeah, I mean, you, you've, touched, you've touched on uh, two very important points there, right? Uh, and we'll try and address both of them one at a time. So I'll try to do it in reverse order, actually. So let's talk about this kind of vendor-specific uh, vendor, uh, solutions, right? Um, and you're right. I, I think to, if we were to summarize, what we're saying is essentially is that and GCP is, is just an example. I'm sure AWS is sure that they're all kind of doing that same thing is that the solution that's coming out of these vendors, it's a vendor specific solution. I think it's a GCP solution, uh, which is so, um, which will obviously solve for only GCP consumers. It's an AWS solution that's only solving for AWS consumers, right? And so on and so on. Um, so if we were to summarize this, it, what we're saying is that the solution is vendor specific, but the problem is industry wide. Right? And we need to, uh, be more vocal about the fact that the problem is an industry-wide problem. As in, the problem is bigger than GCP. The problem is bigger than AWS, and it may be that our our um, the consumers of GCP or the consumers of AWS are thinking is this is a GCP-specific problem that GCP has given a solution for. But the truth is that no, it's a industry-wide problem. Some of these problems are industry-wide. Given, for example, that or service mesh or the identity piece or um, cloud uh, cloud native kind of security monitoring, for example, right? What GCP or what AWS, they all provide are very much specific to, to their cloud. Uh, but the problem 
is is uh, um, you know across the the, uh, the all of these platforms, including Kubernetes. And the problem I think we were talking about now, moving you know coming back to us was the first piece about service mesh, and um, the problem here again is this kind of identity piece and the ubiquitous identity, which probably different vendors are trying to solve uh, as vendor specific in the name of I am, in the name of however they are trying to solve, but it, that, that identity is, is it's not ubiquitous. But now, coming back to the, the last bit, is, is, is this, uh, uh, the, uh, I suppose, the um, feedback that we got about the uh, presumption of an uh, infrastructure model. I think there were definitely, yes, I agree that there was an assumption that was made you know, between you and I. We, we did make an assumption for our listeners. But I think the assumption that we made was rather is that we we hoped or we assumed our listeners uh, uh, um, understood that when we were talking about service mesh, we decoupled the uh, the um, application of service mesh from containers and Kubernetes. Also, we assumed uh, that uh, it is well known that something like console, for example has a single control plane for both VM and containers. Therefore, at which point it, 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 there isn't a, it's not intrinsic you know, between the, the, the service mesh control plane and, and the kind of Kubernetes platform or container platform. Um, so that's the assumption that was made rather as opposed to assuming that everyone is on, on Kubernetes. Having said that, yes, I do also agree from the feedback, the, uh, the impression I get is that also that when we have when we are talking about this, we are assuming that everyone is on service mesh because the they because now we're talking about and I said this obviously last time is that these are day two challenges. I the assumption here is that we've come a long way, or as in the people uh, have now come to a stage, you know, in their journey or digital transformation journey where actually, you know. We have service. We have this whole service discovery. We have service identity, regardless of whether it's a VM or a container. But we we're now we we're on our next challenges and we're on our next problems. We're on our you know first world problems, right? Yes, we are talking in that context. Um, maybe it's uh, I don't know whether it was, it was premature for us to talk about this, but the, I, I would definitely say that for some organisations, these problems do exist. Because some organizations are mature enough to face these problems, right? Um, but yes, for sure, I agree, for the vast majority, maybe they're not there yet because they're still tackling with the basic problems around, you know, perimeter versus no perimeter, possibly. Um, but that was a discussion, right? You know, again, I, I, um, that was more about, okay, you know, let's, let's talk about these problems that people who are not there yet will, will face. Let's talk about... Or, or maybe these problems that don't exist, but let's talk. Let's talk about this and start questioning this, right? Um, that whole kind of obviously service identity, and maybe you're right. That service mesh didn't begin as that. that service mesh was probably began as this kind of offloading uh, some of the uh, functions that were in an application and moved away, so that the application development focused on business, pure business logic. Um, but very quickly, you know, as you said correctly, if that. We've taken advantage of that and started adding, you know, security controls around it. Started adding, you know, uh, uh, controls around which service A can talk to service B but cannot talk to service C, and that's all can be done. And if we talk in networking world again, it's like 
you know, making that separation from data plane and control plane where you can have an SDN uh, that will talk, uh, that can now uh, route traffic from, you know, point A to point B, but not to point C, and that can be done centrally, you know, and service mesh is, 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 a, is a very similar, uh, um, uh, is taking that same approach. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, the service identity piece, I, I think, is, is quite clear, right? Yeah, okay, fair enough. There were some assumptions that were made. Uh, but let's come back to, uh, if I was to summarize, obviously, what this what we're doing here today uh, and what we were bringing up, right? It's about that layered approach and that defense in depth and zero trust, right? Uh, and beyond corp. Now, if what you read, for example, about beyond corp, about application being out on the internet, it further strengthens, right, that zero trust is about no perimeter. It's not about multiple perimeters, right? And when we go to multiple, then when we do defense, when we then use the terminology of defense in depth by adding multiple subnets, right, I see each subnet as a perimeter, right? And then what you're saying is, that, oh, you're not trusting one to the other. But no, that's not the point here. The point is that assume the network is compromised, right? When you start adding separate subnets, i.e. separate perimeters, you've added an element of trust, with the, each of those, they're saying that actually, okay, anyone within that network is okay, uh, or anyone within the subnet is okay. So, how do we get to a position where actually we can have a dev application and a product application uh, in the same network, uh, um, you know, in a shared network or in a shared kind of uh, uh, um, environment, uh, but yet we have assured isolation between the two services and between the two you know, data points. Uh, and this is really, I, I think, if I was to summarize what I'm saying is that, that any additional layers of controls that we do add, we may think it's nice to have, like let's go bells and whistles, right? It shouldn't come at the cost of uh, operational complexity because end of the day, ultimately, where our principal objective is to deliver business application. Security is a constraint. It's not the end goal. It's a constraint that within these constraints, we are still trying to deliver business application. However, if you hinder completely, you know, add roadblocks to it, then you haven't really achieved your principal objective. Even for the security, your security's principal objective is also to deliver that business application. However, their, their, their primary uh, goal is within those is that actually how can it be done securely? So that's what, you know, I think I'm going to kind of end it there really from my side. Awesome. Well, I'll just say before before we go, the, the feedback that, that we've kind of addressed today, that this is not even half of it. There's so much more to tuck into. Maybe in the next episode, we'll, we'll continue going through the feedback and and continue uh, discussing some of, some of the uh, opposition to some of the things that we've said. Um, because like I say, that's, that's what the show is about. This is about kind of learning from one another and growing. Um, so thanks again to everyone that's provided feedback. Uh, I encourage you all to uh, share this episode and also provide us with your feedback. You can reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, I am uh, at DevOps underscore Rob. Um, and uh, Adil, what's your, your Twitter handle? I am DevOps underscore Adil. I also want to say, I just want to say actually, is that, um, you know, we don't want this to be an echo chamber, right? We're, we just keep on agreeing with each other. So please, you know, please reach out to us. Um, and we, we would love for you to even come on the show and, and let's have a back and forth conversation. Uh, I'm sure there's so many things that we're probably missing, uh, so many contexts that we're missing. And, um, you know, we would love to really flesh that. Let's flesh that out, right? And, and let's put that into perspective. That's what I, is what I request, really. 
100%. And with that, I want to say thank you very much for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will catch you on the next one. Peace out, everyone. Thank you all. You've been listening to Keeping It Secure with your host, DevOps Rob and DevOps Adil. Be sure to join us next time 